to V-Back Birth Stories, a podcast where Australians share their journey to a vaginal birth after caesarean. We are a safe haven for women to share their own V-Back journeys and through these personal experiences, educate and empower listeners. I'm your host, Mel. And I'm your host, Steph. And this is V-Back Birth Stories. Hi everyone, welcome to season two of VBAC Birth Stories. Steph and I are excited to bring you our first episode of 2021, an accidental home birth VBAC from Brisbane mum of two, Vanessa. Vanessa's first pregnancy was textbook all the way through and when her waters began to leak at 38 weeks, she headed straight into hospital to be assessed and it was then that she was told she would be induced the following morning. Vanessa, like many first-time mums, did not know at the time that she could have declined and was not given any other option. Vanessa honestly recounts her treatment in this hospital, which may be triggering for some of our listeners, but an important listen, especially for our healthcare professionals, to understand the potential impact of their actions and words on birthing women. After experiencing an early miscarriage, Vanessa fell pregnant with her son, and she knew by this time she wanted to do things differently. This pregnancy, although also textbook, Vanessa did need to advocate for herself, and she did this brilliantly. Vanessa had her hospital birth game plan all figured out, but little did she know her body and her baby had made plans of their own. Thanks, Vanessa, for sharing your incredible story with us. We can't wait for our listeners to hear it. So without further ado, please enjoy our 27th episode of VBAC Birth Stories. Today we're with Vanessa. Vanessa, did you want to start by telling us a bit about yourself and your family? Sure. So I live in Brisbane and I've got two children now. I have my daughter who is three years old and I have my son who is almost three months old. And do you want to tell us a little bit about what ideas you had around childbirth before you became pregnant? So before I became pregnant with my daughter, I kind of assumed that the medical industry or doctors and hospitals would wholeheartedly support natural birth and that they would be supportive of less intervention and things like that. And I guess it wasn't until after my daughter's birth that I started realising that that's not necessarily the case in all circumstances. And I always wanted to have a natural birth and I thought that I would be supported, like if there was no medical indications for anything, that I would be supported for that. But I kind of come to realise that that isn't the case. And I guess that's where after my daughter's birth, I started doing a lot more research when I fell pregnant with my son to make sure that I could be even more informed. I thought I was informed the first time around, but I realise now that I definitely wasn't. Why don't you take us back to Eleanor's pregnancy and what happened there, what knowledge you were given access to and all of that. So um, Eleanor's pregnancy was straightforward. There were no complications. There was no gestational diabetes. Like I I didn't gain a lot of weight and I felt good and healthy throughout the whole pregnancy. I was seeing a private obstetrician 
my husband is a big supporter of private health care. So we've always had private health care. And when I fell pregnant, I chose my obstetrician based on familiarity because about 18 months before I had had a let's procedure because a pap smear came back abnormal. So I didn't really know how to choose a doctor. I just thought, okay, well, we have a relationship already, I guess, and he's familiar with me and I felt comfortable with him. So I booked myself in to see him once the pregnancy was confirmed through my GP. And yeah, I guess the thing that kind of threw me off from the beginning with him was without even talking about birth or anything, it was literally the first appointment. He said, now, when we get to the birth, don't be a hero and just take the pain medication. (laughs) And I was just like, oh, that's kind of a strange thing to say when I'm only nine weeks pregnant. But I kind of just laughed it off. He was quite casual and that kind of put me at ease at the time because I didn't want somebody who was going to kind of talk about all of the dangers or the things that could go wrong in a pregnancy or in birth because that wasn't my pregnancy. So we just kind of trotted along with every appointment. Then as things progressed, like he never pushed for extra scans or anything because Eleanor was always just like normal average growth kind of thing and I didn't put on a lot of weight so nothing indicated for that and then I gave birth early I guess like my waters broke at 38 weeks and two days and we were a long way from home and I had only just started maternity leave and I just thought I can't be giving birth yet I've still got at least two weeks if not four weeks Mm -hmm. so um, you know everybody tells you that you'll go over over 40 weeks with your first baby. So I was like, this can't be happening. And yeah, especially with my waters breaking first, I was like, that's not how labor starts. (laughs) It was all a bit shocking. And then we were two hours from home. We were on the Sunshine Coast. I didn't really know what to do. I called my husband and yeah, and he was like, it's okay. I was crying. I was in tears. I was like, I'm not ready for my pregnancy to end yet. And we just called the hospital. And then as soon as you say your waters have broken, they're like, well, come in. And that's where things kind of went, okay. And um, now I realise I had kind of been in early labour the entire day. I thought that that kind of crampy feeling was just the discomfort of your third trimester. (laughs) Now I know that was the like early labour or um, pre-labour kind of thing. And when your waters had broken, was that like a full gush? Like was it, so was it sort of a leak? Like how was that? It was was all a leak. um, Right. But... That was the first instance. And then I went into the toilet to put a pad into my underwear in case more came out. And then more of a gush came. And I was like, well, that's definitely waters like going. So, yeah. And they were clear and nothing indicated anything to be worried about. Do you want to tell us about what happened when you arrived at hospital? Did your obstetrician know as well? Did you speak to him before? So it was after business hours. So I didn't call the obstetrician. It was after five o'clock. So we called the hospital and they said, make your way down. And we had our dog with us. So we kind of had a few pit stops along the way to drop the dog home. And then we made it into the hospital around nine o'clock in the evening. And I had kind of felt the waters trickling out more and more when we were in the car. So they just took me into the assessment room and did a short CTG on Bub and she was happy. We didn't know she was a she at the time. We just kept saying Bub was happy. And the midwife asked me if I was starting to have any contractions yet. And I kind of said, no, I haven't really felt anything. She looked like 
to make sure that the waters were clear and she wasn't concerned about anything. And she just said, okay, well, we'll keep you in overnight. And they wanted to give me sleeping tablets. They said, we'll give you some sleeping tablets so you can get a good night's rest. And if nothing gets going over the next 10 hours or so of the evening, then we'll induce you in the morning. And I was just like, I didn't know, like, now I know I didn't know anything or I could have said, no, I'm going home to wait for labor to start. And we kind of just went, okay. Obviously I didn't sleep that night. You know, nurses are coming in to check my blood pressure and just the apprehension of knowing you're going to give birth soon. How was the option of induction presented to you at that stage? It was literally just presented as if contractions don't start on their own tonight, then we'll induce you in the morning. It wasn't a question like, there was no question of how would you like to start your induction or would you like to be induced in the morning or would you like to go home like and come back in 24 hours and um, and did you have any knowledge about the induction process before they'd said that to you i knew the methods of induction i guess but i didn't really know how the actual process would unfold did they give you any of that information at the stage either no no and they didn't even tell me which method of induction they would use until the morning. Like in the morning I ate my breakfast and then they came and got me and said, come up to birth suite now and we'll start the induction. And it was at that point when they put the cannula in and said, okay, we're going to use Syntocin and we'll just start on a low dose. And they made it sound really positive. Like, oh, lots of women on a low dose of Syntocin, that's all they need. And labor just kicks off from there. And I was like, okay, well, that's surely what's going to happen. But it didn't go like that. So, <laughs> so what ended up happening? Once induction started, the next morning, obviously, you woke up, you didn't have any consistent contractions or? No, I didn't have any consistent contractions. So, yeah, I had my breakfast in the hospital and they came and got me and we toddled up to birth suite. And they said, I'll just relax here. And they went and got the registrar and she put the cannula in my hand. And they explained that the cannula was more to give antibiotics because my waters had been ruptured for a while now. And I was okay with that. And then they said, okay, well, we're going to start the Syntocin and we'll start it on a low dosage and hopefully that will get you going. And then They just explained that if that didn't work, we'll kind of increase the dosage every hour until you're having regular contractions. And they considered regular contractions to be four good contractions in 10 minutes. And it took me until midday to get to that point. So they, by midday, they had put the Syntocin up. They told me as high as it could go for, I don't know what the dosage was. I was having four contractions in 10 minutes, but they didn't consider them to be strong contractions really. And I was coping with the pain quite well. And I wanted to move around, but they really discouraged that because they wanted the continual fetal monitoring. And that's what frustrated me the most because I knew enough to know that I had to keep moving and keep vertical or in an upright position to keep baby moving down. And they, all they were worried about was the CTG and monitoring her. Yeah. At this point you'd had the induction drip in and you were coping well. You knew that you wanted to move around. What position were they saying 
that they wanted you in. They didn't specifically say, oh, you have to lay down or whatever, but I could sense their frustration with losing the baby's heartbeat. And that made me anxious then because I feel like sometimes I'm a bit of a people pleaser or that these are medical professionals. So I have to kind of follow what they want to do. And so I thought, well, I need to stay still or whatever. I need to do my best to make their job easier, which is not what I should have been thinking. But I think a lot of women kind of think like that because we have such respect for nurses and doctors. So, yeah, then I ended up just trying to stay on the bed. I had a um, an internal exam, the on-call obstetrician came in because it was a Saturday. So my obstetrician wasn't on call that weekend. And um, the on-call one came in and he kind of just monitored me. And I thought it was the strangest thing that the midwives kept saying, do you want the gas? Use the gas. Like you need to basically fake being in pain for this doctor so that he thinks things are moving along. And I just didn't understand. I was like, why do I need to fake that? Like, shouldn't it be a good thing that I'm coping with these contractions? Okay. And then he gave me an internal exam and, um, and that was really rough. Like that felt horrible. And um, he released even more waters. So he said things should keep going now because even more waters have been released. So now I know that it was my hind water that had kind of been released and he broke my four waters so that her head could move down a bit more easily. Did he did he tell you he was going to break your waters on during that vaginal examination? No, he didn't. He just said that he wanted to examine me and I think he probably even gave me a pretty rough stretch and sweep to, I don't know why they do that, but knowing what I know now, I think that's probably more likely what happened rather than just an examination of my progress because um, when the midwife examined me later in the evening, it was nowhere near that rough. So that's just my assumption, I guess. Yeah. When they give you ex- vaginal examinations, do they tell you in advance, you know, if it's hurting, please tell us we can, you know, to stop now? Was any of that um, communicated to you before no. the examination took place? No, it wasn't. Oh, I'm sorry, hun. Just the stuff that's like- yeah, and the thing is, like, it happens too often and it's not right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So from there, when he removed his hands from my body, he said, oh, you're three centimetres. And so I thought that that was really good progress. So I knew that labour for your first baby would be a long, long process. And I had no expectations of how long I didn't want to put myself on a clock. And everybody seems pretty happy with that progress in that time. So we kind of just kept trotting along. And because he was on call, he kind of left then and he said I'll come back in a few hours to check on you and they kept saying like that he would be monitoring me from home so there must be some sort of communication between the hospital and the obstetrician that they can communicate the CTG recordings and things like that so I was fine I was comfortable enough and then 
my lunch came in and the midwife said, oh, well, don't eat too much lunch. And I was like, pardon? And she said, oh, well, you know, in case of a cesarean, we don't want you to be sick or have too much food in your stomach. And I was like, what do you mean in case of a cesarean? Like, why are we even thinking about that now? Eleanor's heart rate had been perfectly healthy and happy the whole time. I was like, we don't need to think that, but I guess they started planting the seed of doubt that one, my body wasn't going to do what it needs to do or, and that things were going to go badly at some point along the way. So I didn't eat much lunch. And I remember then later being hungry and like restraining myself from eating the sandwich that was on that little table. So I just kind of stayed quiet and I felt uncomfortable. Then I felt like I was constantly being watched and I didn't want to be. And I have this image in my head of the next time the obstetrician came in of him just like with his back against the wall and me on the bed and he was just watching me. And I just closed my eyes because I didn't want to see anybody. And then as the afternoon went on, I asked the nurse to dim the lights and I was like, I'm sick of the bright lights in this birth suite. And I knew that it was becoming evening or getting close to the evening and that naturally the sun would be setting. So I just kind of wanted to mimic that in the birth suite. So, and to try to relax like that. And so I did, and my husband was quiet. Like he knew, he knew that me feeling his presence in the room was enough that he didn't need to be a cheerleader kind of thing that, Um, I was just happy to have him there with me and I could feel his support. And then the midwife examined me and I had moved to five centimetres. So we were happy with that. And at that point I asked to have a shower and she kind of made me feel bad about that. She was like, oh, I need you to stay on the monitor. And it wasn't a waterproof or wireless monitor. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I've been in here all day. Like, I feel gross. I just want to relax. Like, and the contractions were picking up and I was having to breathe through them. And I said, I think that the shower could really help me. And she said, okay, but only for 10 minutes. And so I wheeled my little stick thing in with the syntocin (laughs) (laughs) went and stood in the shower and I had a lot of pain in my back. So I just kept the shower on my back and my husband came in with me and he was just sitting on the edge of the bath and we were just talking. And I just said to him, like, I'm not getting out of this shower until she comes to get me. I was like, if I can squeeze in an extra minute, because I was really comfortable in there. And then sure enough, she came in eventually and said, like, I need you to get back on the monitor. We need to listen to Bub and me being the little pleaser that I was. Went, okay, and dried myself off and got back onto that bed. And she asked to examine me again. It's interesting. So they were keen to have you on the CTG, but up to this point, Eleanor was showing no sign of distress and there were no issues. There were no issues. She was perfectly happy in there. So I think it's just policy or a matter of them feeling protected that they keep that CTG on. When she examined me, I was still at five centimetres and it had been another two hours. So she kind of said, oh, you've stalled a bit. Then they kept saying, like, you need to think about a cesarean and that things aren't really moving as quickly as we like. And you've been on Syntocin for 12 hours now. So 
baby will start getting tired with the level of contractions that you're having and that things can go downhill quickly. So they started planting all of this fear in my mind, which obviously no first time mum wants to hear that things can go downhill quickly. And then when the obstetrician came back in, the like final straw, like the final piece of fear, he was like, well, it's seven o'clock or eight o'clock, whatever the time was. And the theatre team isn't here. So if we need to have a cesarean, it'll be about 40 minutes before like the theatre nurses and the paediatrician can come in. So, you know, you kind of need to weigh up your risk. And that was kind of like the last thing that I needed to hear to make me worry about what could possibly happen to my baby. And I just said, well, can I just have a little bit more time? And he said, okay, well, I'll stay here at the hospital. I'll give you one more hour and then we'll see how things are. And I said, okay. And my husband and I spoke and I just said, well, I don't want things to go downhill quickly. Like there was no indication that things would, but they had planted enough doubt and fear in me that I didn't want things to go downhill quickly. So we just, we consented to the cesarean at that point and said, okay, well, get her out while she's still happy and that hopefully there would be no need for her to go to special care or anything after the birth. So yeah, after a full day, on Sintocin and only getting to five centimetres with no indication that she was unwell, we went to theatre. I just wanted to go back to your obstetrician having that conversation with you. When you look back now on that interaction, how would you describe the relationship that you had with him? So when I booked in with my obstetrician, he gave me um, like three or four pages of printouts of who was on call on what weekend because Eleanor is a December baby. When I booked him, I made sure I asked that he wasn't having holidays around Christmas. My due date was the 28th of December, but he did clearly tell me that like they have a rotating roster for weekends and after hours. So I had no familiarity with the obstetrician that was on call on that weekend. So when we were having these conversations, it was quite cold, I guess. And because I was in pain for most of the time, when you're trying to make these decisions with somebody you've never met, I guess maybe I was a bit abrupt, which made him a bit short, but he should be used to those interactions if he's dealing with labouring women all the time. So, yeah, I don't feel like there was a, a relationship at all, really. It was just very matter of fact. It seemed like that as well with the midwives at that, that hospital as well, you know. I think the midwives kind of were fearful of him as an obstetrician as well, that he would come down on them if they deviated from whatever the hospital policies were. And so they didn't really give any room to to making me feel like I could make my own decisions. They were very much on the hospital side rather than on the birthing mother's side until that baby was out. And then, then they, everyone kind of breathed a collective sigh of relief. Mm. How did the cesarean go, Vanessa? It was good. It was gentle. Like the midwives and the nurses tried to relieve me and said, oh, he's a very good obstetrician and he's known for not leaving 
any scarring and things like that. And that was the last thing on my mind after a full day in labour. I do remember it being noisy. And what I remember most is feeling nauseous after that spinal block. And I said to the anaesthetist, I was like, I feel so sick. And I was gagging. I said, I'm not, I don't want to vomit while my baby's being born. Like, and she said, okay, I'll give you something. So she gave me some anti-nausea medication and that lasted a little while. And then it came back and I told her again and she gave me some more. And my husband was, you know, right there by my head kind of thing. And we were kind of just quiet and taking in the moment. And then it was quick, you know, once they decide to cut you open, the surgery was quick and they pulled her out and she cried. And I couldn't even, like I said, we didn't know if we were having a boy or a girl. I couldn't even see what, what gender she was. And I had to ask, which I know some people don't like being told by the midwife or the doctor what their baby is. And I said to my husband, I was like, what is it? What is it? And he said, it's a girl, it's a girl. And he really wanted a daughter. So we were both super happy. Yeah. And they wrapped her up and and then brought her over to me. And they said straight away, oh, she's a bit cold. We'll need to monitor her temperature. And I said, okay. So we had our little cuddle, but again, like that fear played into my mind. I was just like, well, if she's cold and she needs to be warmed up, then I want the best care for her. And I kind of said that to the nurses. So then they took her away and they kept her under the lights kind of thing while they um, finished stitching me up. And I didn't have her in recovery, which I know I could have, I know now, I didn't know at the time that I could have requested for her to come to recovery with me. How did you feel physically afterwards? I was just very tired. I could hardly keep, once she was out, I, it was like the adrenaline completely left my body, which I know isn't a good hormone to have while you're laboring, but it was like the adrenaline completely left my body and I could hardly keep my eyes open when they were stitching me up. And I think I probably even did fall asleep for a bit. And then I woke up and they said like, you're almost done. And yeah, and then they wheeled me into recovery. And I think I might've even fibbed a little bit in recovery when they were checking for the anesthesia to wear off. Cause I just wanted to get back to my room and I was still a little bit numb, but I just said, yeah, yeah, I can feel that. I <laughs> <laughs> just want to see your baby. Yeah. Yeah. And my husband and yeah. um, she did go to special care for that hour or so that I was in recovery to be warmed up. But when, by the time I got back to my room on the ward, she was in my room and my husband always says, he was like, he was busting for the loo and he didn't go, he didn't go. And he knew in his head, he's like, if I go to the bathroom, they're going to wheel Vanessa in like while I'm in there. And she's going to be so cranky at me for not staying right with the baby. <laughs> Eleanor was in her little crib in my room and as I was coming in he was walking out of the bathroom he was like I knew that was going to happen <laughs> and I said it's okay like you needed to go to the bathroom it's fine <laughs> and then so, how yeah. did you feel when you were reunited with her did you get skin to skin immediately when you were in the room and I had to ask 
the midwife to bring Eleanor over to me. And she kind of said, oh, she's fine. She's just sleeping in her crib. Like you just rest kind of thing. And I said, no, I want to feed my baby. And she was like, but she's not necessarily hungry right now. And I was like, I know, but I didn't get the birth that I wanted. So can you please just bring me my baby and help me feed her? Like I can't get up and get her myself. And um, she said, oh, okay. And I said, well, can you help me breastfeed? Like I'm, she's my first baby. I've never done this before. And so she, I felt begrudgingly helped me latch Eleanor to my breast so that I could feed her for the first time. And yeah, and I don't know, like if she felt burdened because then she had to kind of stay there those few minutes. And it wasn't a long process, like as a newborn baby, she was fresh. And not long after I fed Eleanor, the nausea came back and I knew that nauseous feeling was because I had literally nothing in my stomach. And I just said to the nurse, I was like, can you please just get me some dry crackers? Like, I'm not asking for a three course meal. I just need to put something in my stomach. And before she came back, I did vomit. Then I said, can I have a drink? And I said, I've got some Powerade in the fridge. And um, she kind of made a snide comment like, oh, goody, I'll get to see like purple vomit instead. And I was like, oh, well, none of this is my fault. Like this is just the process of my body. So after going through all this trauma. How did you feel? Um, You know, we do talk about how the way we're made to feel when we give birth, um, it really stays with us. And I know from my experience as well, one midwife who was a bit cranky, that stayed with me. How did you feel in that moment when you reflect on it? I guess now I feel like I was was a burden to them, like at 10 o'clock at night that I couldn't be the mother that I wanted to be straight away because I had to rely on other people kind of thing. So it didn't make me make me feel good. And I guess these are the strongest memories that I have. And that's why I'm able to talk about them so vividly. Does that still upset you now, Vanessa, when you look back on that experience, even though, you know, it was three years ago or so now, does that still make you feel that in any way? Yeah, I think it probably makes me feel more upset now thinking about it because I know better. And I know like hindsight and everything like that but at the time I kind of brushed it all off because I had those feelings of oh well I just need to be nice to the nurses kind of thing so I feel more upset by it now because I know how it should be. Did you ever after the birth give feedback to I guess the obstetrician I mean did you actually have like a I guess a catch-up with your with your obstetrician that you had. So then I saw my obstetrician at the six week postnatal checkup and he said to me, Oh yeah, I saw that you went into the hospital, but I was down in Port Macquarie for the weekend, which is about a seven hour drive from Brisbane. He said, yeah, I was already down there. So I didn't worry about coming in. He said, I knew that you would be in good hands. And I was like, Okay, well, thanks. (laughs) Did you give him any feedback about how the day went? No, he didn't really make me feel like I could talk about it in any great detail. He was like, well, kind of had that mentality of, well, you're healthy and baby's healthy, so you both should be happy. 
So, you know, and we know that that's not necessarily the only thing that matters in a birth. And he did straight away say, well, you would be a good candidate for a VBAC. And um, at the time I thought, oh, yeah, well, I could see you for a VBAC. But then once I fell pregnant, I was like, no way in hell. Mm. Did you? <laughs> what changed between then and the time yeah. you fell pregnant? Gonna, gonna say, <laughs> have you done any research in the meantime? What's happening there? <laughs> so what, what happened or what changed was we did Eleanor's newborn photos with a photographer and she's also a doula. And she's a birth photographer. So she came to our house and we were taking these lovely photos and like just as you do, you chat and you're, well, I felt happy to tell my birth story to just about anybody who would listen. So we spoke about it and she kind of planted those seeds of, well, that didn't need to happen in that way or you could have said no to this and really started to open my eyes to... And she said all of this in a very non-judgmental way. Like I didn't feel judged at all. And yeah, that started opening my eyes to how the hospital system positions you in a way to, to roll with their policies and that you really need to be much stronger in yourself and much more courageous to be able to stand up to them. Yeah. So then after this time and after you had Eleanor, how did you go back at home postpartum and how was your breastfeeding journey with her? So I did successfully breastfeed her for 13 months, but it was hard work at the beginning. My milk didn't come in until I was at home. And I think that was probably just because of the induction process and the cesarean that my hormones weren't what they needed to be to get that milk in as quickly as what some mums experience. And with Nathaniel, my milk came in by the end of day two. So I know that my body is perfectly fine and does exactly what it needs to do when it's left to do it. We did overcome a couple of issues, but I did really get those baby blues hardcore. And I don't know if it bordered on postnatal depression or not. I never really sought out a diagnosis for that. I did know about the baby blues, so I just assumed that it was that. But I think it probably carried on a little bit longer than what the baby blues usually do. That was tough to get through. So did you want to take us now to your second pregnancy and I suppose the gap in between the sort of thoughts that were going through your mind and how you approached that second pregnancy? Yep. So it didn't take us long to decide that we would have a second baby. We kind of always knew that we didn't want to have an only child. That wasn't a hard decision to make. It was just a matter of kind of waiting for the right time. Once I returned to work and I did stop breastfeeding at that point in time, my cycle returned to normal. So Eleanor was one. When she was about 18 months, I did fall pregnant, but I did have an early miscarriage. That was a little bit hard, but for some reason I had this instinct that that pregnancy wouldn't work out. And so I think I found it a bit easier to deal with. And then, so I went to the doctors and 
and confirmed that it was a miscarriage and everything like that. My GP was really good and she was even calling me at home to to check on me and make sure that I was okay. How many weeks were you at that stage? Sorry. I was six weeks. Yeah. Did you want to take us to our third to your third pregnancy story, not ours. <laughs> um, what happened there? We had a family holiday booked to New Zealand, which we were excited about. And we were looking forward to that ability to just relax and spend some really good quality family time together. And yeah, and that's when Nathaniel was conceived. So it was nice. We were both relaxed and enjoying each other's company and felt really connected, I guess, as a family and ready to grow our family and like felt quite positive about what the outcome would be. How differently did you want this pregnancy to go? Did you choose a different care provider, for example? Um, Yeah. Do you want to talk us through through that? So I was even more committed to my ability to have a natural birth. And in between all of that, we had sold our house in one area and moved to a completely different area which I knew I wouldn't want to go back to the private hospital that I birthed Eleanor at. It was, for practicality's sake, it was too far of a drive to do it when you're in labour. So I knew that that wasn't an option. But again, my husband being quite pro-private health still wanted me to go privately. So I started researching and I found a private midwife, but she wasn't happy to do a hospital birth. She was a home birth midwife and I wasn't quite comfortable with that. So I tried to talk to other mums and I was on that VBAC support group on Facebook and scrolled through there and found that a obstetrician in my local area was more VBAC friendly than any other obstetrician around. So I thought, okay, well, here's my best bet. I'll keep my husband happy and we'll go privately. And he seems to have good VBAC rates. We had our first appointment in with that clinic and there's two of them in there and I saw the other doctor, there's a man and a woman and I saw the female doctor and she was all happy for me to do a VBAC at that point in time but I just got this sense of they say like a bait and switch kind of thing like that they were going to say yes 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 until the last minute when they'll all of a sudden say, oh, well, your baby's too big or you're too overdue or, you know, pull some sort of reason out of the hat to, to start pushing an induction or an elective caesarean. So I walked out of there knowing that I wasn't going to see them again. And I said to my husband, like, I don't think this is the care provider for me. And he said, oh, but she said yes. And I explained all of what I just said to him and he said, okay. And then for him, the straw that broke the camel's back was I asked to do like that harmony test at 10 weeks and she was on board with that. But when I called the clinic to book in to get my results, the receptionist said, oh no, you don't need to have an appointment. Like we'll just see you at your next appointment, which wasn't for another four or five weeks. And I said, no, no, I want to come in and get my results as soon as they're available. And they told me they'd be available in a week. So can I have an appointment? And she insisted that I 
didn't need to have an appointment then. And so I hung up the phone and I told Chris what had happened. And he said, no, well, that's not right. Like you're paying $85 per appointment plus your pregnancy management fee. You should be able to make an appointment whenever you want. And I agreed. And I said, well, what happens when I have a genuine concern? And they say, oh, no, no, just wait until your next appointment. So I said to Chris, that's it. Like I'll go to my GP and ask to be referred to the public hospital and I will hire my doula who is Selena from Brisbane Birth Photography. And I had already contacted her and told her that I was pregnant. And I said, I want you to be my doula. And she was on board for that. And yeah, and that's where we went. We went down the public hospital route with our doula in tow. So we made a good team. Right. Was this the same doula that did the photography yeah. of your child, of your baby? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, definitely. So we, I felt really comfortable with her in that photography session. And I knew that we connected well enough that I would want her to be my doula. Cool. Do you want to tell us how your pregnancy went with Nathaniel? So everything was really good. I was really healthy. I was much more sick the second time around. But anyway, when I went to the hospital for my first appointment, they wanted to do two gestational diabetes tests. They wanted me to do an early one at 17 weeks and then the normal one. And from then I knew that I would have to be strong. And I took the referral that the midwife gave me, but I knew in my head that I was going to say no. So Can I ask why they were giving you two tests? Because of my BMI. So okay. because my BMI was higher than what their accepted tolerance is, they suggested that I was at an increased risk of gestational diabetes because of my weight and that it would be in my best interest to have an early diagnosis if I was going to develop gestational diabetes. And I said, is that my only risk factor, like my weight? And she said, yes. And I said, so if you have like a bodybuilder in here who is all muscle, but their BMI is still high, then you would tell them that they're at an increased risk of gestational diabetes too. And she was like, well, yeah, I guess so. And I was like, yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) So I took the referral to be polite. I was like, I'm not going to start an argument here. But I didn't do the test. And so I went and got a glucose monitor and I tested my blood sugars myself at that 17-week point and again at 28 weeks and I didn't have gestational diabetes at all. And I feel like monitoring my own blood sugars for a week at a time is more conclusive than a one-off test where if you had passed the night before, then maybe you're blood sugar would be higher than it usually is. Definitely tell you're more confident this time around, you know, you're saying. (laughs) So so what ended up being the outcome of the gestational diabetes? My GP was happy with my blood sugar levels. I, I wrote them down every time I tested and she said that they were well below the tolerance levels. And again, when I went to the hospital for my 20 week appointment and I, I think they just instantly referred me to an obstetrician then because I never saw a midwife again for my antenatal appointments. She was happy 
with my blood sugar levels as well. So there were no concerns with gestational diabetes. So did they switch you to obstetrician-only care at the public hospital after you declined the gestational diabetes test? Yes. How did that make you feel? It made me feel like I would definitely need to be strong in myself and well-researched and well-read. One, about pregnancy and how to achieve my VBAC, but two, about what the hospital is going or what the doctors and representatives of the hospital are going to try to throw at me so that I could kind of, I felt like I needed to keep one step ahead of them and what they could possibly say to me in an appointment that I would need to make decisions around. In terms of preparation, did you do anything differently? Did you do any courses, read any books or anything that was different? I did start reading a book, but it's quite difficult to read when you have a toddler. So there wasn't many hours in the day that I could read. I kind of read a little bit, but I tried to do more research online, I guess. And I had my doula. So before and after my doctor appointments, I would talk to my doula and she would kind of say, well, usually at this gestation, this is what they would talk to you about and this is what they might suggest you do because it's a VBAC or things like that. So I would speak to her and then I would debrief with her afterwards. And yeah, and I guess a lot of my research came from that VBAC support group on Facebook and I would find the links and the um, evidence-based research that people would post on there and I would read those things. I really tried to stay positive and I really focused on building that positivity that my body would do exactly what it needs to do at exactly the right time. And I made sure that I built that confidence up of my body because I didn't want to doubt my body. And I think that that's really what got me through. How were the appointments with the obstetricians when they discussed the risks of VBAC with you? Were they positive appointments? Yeah, they were generally fairly easygoing. She did like tell me that the success rate of a VBAC is higher than the failure rate of a VBAC, but obviously did talk about the risk of a uterine rupture. And then I kind of asked about the risks of a cesarean. And I said, so what are the risks of a repeat cesarean? And she couldn't really tell me. So I was like, well, I know that there are risks to any surgery. So yeah, her not really being able to answer those questions made me even more committed to my VBAC. And she did at times talk about the positive outcomes of a VBAC. So that was good. And how did you feel about uterine rupture? Was that on your mind? It wasn't really on my mind. I think what more played on my mind was I had read that anybody is at risk of a uterine rupture, really. So even a first-time mum, it's still a risk. It might be a very minute risk, but it's still there. I guess I was, one, confident that I wouldn't be the person it happened to, which I don't know if that's a little bit silly, but I had to believe that for myself. And two, I was confident enough in the, even if a uterine rupture happened, that I would be in the right place for them to look after me and bub. And that a catastrophic uterine rupture was even more of a smaller risk. So even if it did happen, 
the chances of me and Bub being okay afterwards, although it would be really traumatic, the chances of us being okay afterwards were still high enough for me to feel comfortable with that decision. Do you want to take us to the end stages of your pregnancy and what kind of headspace you were in? So I was still quite positive and quite comfortable and I was preparing myself. I had 42 weeks in my head. I was prepared to go to 42 weeks without any sort of induction unless something was showing that it was wrong with me or Bub. And then I kind of got a bit of white coat syndrome in those last few appointments where my blood pressure did rise during the appointment. At my 36-week appointment, it happened. The obstetrician said, I think I'll refer you for a, um, a growth scan. And I said, oh, what is indicating that I would need that? And she just said, oh, well, because it's a VBAC, we need to make sure that bub isn't getting too big and we need to be prepared in case of a postpartum hemorrhage. And I was like, what in a growth scan is going to tell you about a postpartum hemorrhage? And she was like, oh, well, we just like, like to make sure. And again, her answer was really vague and I was really uncomfortable with that. I said, so if I don't do the growth scan, you won't be prepared for a postpartum hemorrhage in birth suite. And she was like, no, we're always prepared. And I said, okay, well, I don't need to worry about it then. Like mm. we'll have it. it was really <laughs> odd, especially because when they had measured my fundal measurements, they were always exactly where they needed to be. I wasn't big. I wasn't small. So there was no indication that baby's growth would be of any risk to anything. As you neared the end, did the hospital speak to you about induction options or booking in a repeat Caesar, any of that? No, they didn't. So I think I was really lucky that they didn't. She said at my 40-week appointment, we would discuss induction options and booking in an induction. And I yeah. thankfully never got to my 40-week appointment. So, so tell, so tell <laughs> us what so happened. Well, actually, can I ask you one question before we get okay. into the third story? Because you know how your waters had leaked, right? Um, and then they had broken. And then the hospital that you were at before, the policy was to get induced within a certain time frame was that playing on your mind like what if that scenario plays out again I was ready for my waters to break early again and I knew I was going to give myself 24 to 48 hours before contacting the hospital to tell them that my waters had broken I was definitely going to give myself more time I had a game plan in my head <laughs> that if, if that unfolded in the same way that I would stay home and I wouldn't do anything silly, like I wouldn't have a bath, I wouldn't have sex or anything like that, but I would stay home and wait for labour to start on its own. And if it didn't start within, you know, a day or day and a half, then I would call the hospital and I would just go in to have antibiotics and be monitored, but I wouldn't consent to an induction straight away. So that was my game plan, but it didn't happen like that. It happened quite the opposite. Tell us. So I had been doing acupuncture to start the labour process. And I guess some people look at that as a form of induction. But we had just done it to prepare my body. And I had seen a chiropractor as well to make sure that my pelvis was in alignment to make sure that baby could get into a good position. Everything was looking good and 
we were both still really happy and healthy. And then at 39 weeks, I started losing my plug. And I was like, okay, well, things are starting to get going. And it took a whole week before anything actually happened. When I was 39 weeks and six days, I went to acupuncture and she confirmed my gestation and said, okay, well, we'll like do a little bit more intense acupuncture today to start moving things. She always spoke about moving things downwards and creating space. So she did her thing and I felt good. And then on the Thursday, I was quite crampy and didn't think anything of it. You know, just did the usual mum things with my toddler and made dinner. And I was just tired and kind of just felt a little bit off. But I was like, well, you're almost full term. So that's what's going to happen. And then on Friday, labour started with those early contractions. And I was just playing with Eleanor. We were playing out the back and my husband finishes work early on Friday. So he came home around midday and I said, I think that labor is starting. Let's have lunch and and then we'll go for a walk. I just want to keep moving and see if we can get things going. And he said, okay. So we did that. We took Eleanor out on her bike and just walked slowly. And I could definitely start to feel a pattern to my contractions and that they were becoming more regular but I was still managing them quite fine. And then as the afternoon progressed, everything was becoming more and more intense and I I couldn't really talk through the contractions anymore, like where I would have been able to maintain conversation. I kind of had to pause and, and breathe. And Eleanor kind of picked up on this and she would come over and be like, mummy, are you okay? Are you okay? And I'd say, yes, mummy's okay. And I said to my husband, like, I think we should give her a bath and take her to my dad's. Like my dad was going to be the one to look after her when I had to go to hospital. So he gave her a bath and we told her that she was going to go to her granddad's place and she loves going there. So she was more than happy. And yeah, I gave her one last cuddle and kiss goodbye at around four o'clock in the afternoon I think because I could sense that she was getting anxious seeing me in pain like she knew that this isn't how mummy usually behaves. Chris took her and he came back really quickly my dad's just down the road. In that time I started timing my contractions and the app was saying to go to hospital and I just thought in my head no. (laughs) Why why was that? Why did you think in your head no, I'm not going. What was driving it? I thought it was too early and they were about seven-ish minutes apart and they were lasting a minute. But my doula, Selena, had said our game plan was that I wasn't going to go to hospital until I was about eight centimetres. And I fully trusted her to know when that point, when I would be around eight centimetres. And I asked her and she said, I'll be able to tell from your body language. And we had spoken about making sure we didn't go to hospital too early to avoid any unnecessary interventions. So we wanted to make sure that labour was really well established before we went to hospital. And I was on board for that game plan and I knew that I could handle it. And she said to me, like, I need you to be strong. It will get painful and we'll use natural pain remedies at home. But she said, I don't want you to use 
like going into the shower until you really can't handle your contractions out of the shower. And then we'll use some water to help you cope and things like that. And I had been in contact with her all day and she said that things sounded promising, but I still had in the back of my head, like, oh, this will fizzle out soon kind of thing. How did the contractions compare, because this was natural, spontaneous labour, how did it compare to your induction, the drip contractions? I feel like the contractions that I were have, was having in my transition stage of Nathaniel's birth were my contractions the whole way on that syntocin drip. So being eased into it, like even though it's a long process of a whole day and half a night in labour, it's much more manageable when you can ease yourself into it and they build gradually rather than being thrown in full force. I was able to relax in myself and just just keep going kind of thing. So Eleanor's at her granddad's and it's just Chris and I at home and the poor guy's following me around the house wherever I moved to. He kind of was that quiet, silent support presence that I had. And I knew that he would be there in an instant if I said I need something. And I think I was annoying because I just kept asking for more water. I was so thirsty with like breathing and controlling my breathing. It just made me super thirsty. So he was fetching me water and coconut water all the time and following me around the house. And then in the evening, Selena had said like, oh, she called at one point around 5.30 and I was able to breathe through my contractions and then go back to talking to her kind of thing until... I needed to be sick. And I just said, I need to be sick. I've got to go. And I like hung up the phone. After I did that, I called her back. I was like, sorry. She's like, you didn't have to hang up. It's fine. Like I hear it and see it all the time. And I was like, oh, well, you know, (laughs) deserve some modesty for now. And from there, I kind of sensed that I was in active labor and it wasn't going to slow down like that. This was it. We said to each other, like, I'll, I'll just keep you informed. I'll let you know what's going on. And she said, when you want me, just tell me and I'll come over. So we left it at that. And she said, just try to rest. And if you feel like eating, have something to eat. And I didn't really feel like eating. So I just f- tried to focus on resting as much as I could between contractions. But every time one came, I would have to jump up. And Chris and I were watching Grey's Anatomy and I think we were up to like the last couple of episodes in the series and um, I just couldn't focus on it anymore. And I was getting tired of standing, but I couldn't sit. Like I I just had to keep moving. And then at around 8 o'clock, he made me a slice of Vegemite toast and I had two bites of that and I couldn't even focus enough to eat. And so I put that away started to use the bath and the shower and that really helped me feel more relaxed and then at one point I was in the shower in our ensuite and I asked Chris to get me a towel because I was tired of standing I thought I'll just kneel down for a little bit I got down on my knees and then a contraction came and I was like oh what have I done to myself it felt so much worse and I screamed at him to like help me get up because I couldn't get up by myself. And it honestly felt like he was moving so slow. He literally had to move about two steps from the bed to the ensuite. And I was like, hurry up. 
but he got there and he helped me up and I was like why do people say that that would make it feel better it doesn't feel better <laughs> and I kind of lost the plot for a couple of minutes I got out of the shower and I dried myself off and I said I either need to go to the hospital or I need Selena here now and he was like, well, let's call Selena and get her here. And it was about 10 o'clock at night. She had messaged me at nine o'clock saying, I'm going to go to bed to get an early night. I've got my phone. Like, so just call when you need me. And we called and she didn't answer at first. And I was like, oh, <laughs> and I said to Chris, I can't do it anymore. Like I'm not coping. Where's my break? Like I want to have a break. And he said, you're not going to get a break now. And then Selena called me back and I was sitting on the toilet because I just felt so much pressure in my bottom that I wanted to sit because I was tired, but I didn't want anything pushing on my bottom like a chair would. And I spoke to her and I just tried to be really calm. Like I didn't want to let on that I wasn't coping or I was about to lose my cool. <laughs> and I just said, just, you know, you don't have to rush. You can have a shower if you want. It'll be okay. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you sitting on the toilet with all this pressure in your bum? <laughs> and she was like, I'll be there within an hour. Like, you know, I'm a 45 minute drive away. And I was like, I know it's all right. <laughs> and so I moved, hung up the phone from her again and I moved to the main bathroom where the bath is and asked Chris to fill it up again. He filled it up and I got back in the bath and I just had all the lights off and it was fine. And I can't remember exactly where he was, but I don't think he was in the bathroom with me. And we had our bags already in the car. We did that earlier in the evening. Time felt like it was going really quickly. And before I knew it, like I heard him go and answer the door to let Selena in. She came in really quietly and came and asked me how I was. And I was like, yeah, I'm okay. He said, but I think like I, when I get a contraction at the peak of the contraction, like I can't help but push. And she was like, oh, we'll try not to push. Like, we don't know how far you are. And, you know, you don't want to be pushing on your cervix. I was like, I know. Like, I've read the stories <laughs> of people pushing on their cervix and it's just, you know, it leads them to a cesarean when the cervix swells. I had all of these stories in my head. I was like, I can't, I don't want to do this, but I can't help it. And she said, okay, well, can I have a look? And I said, okay. She said, I'll have a look and see if I can see baby's head. And so she had a look and she said, I can't see baby's head there. So if you can, just resist the urge to push. I said, okay, I'll try. And she said, how about we get out of the bath and time some of your contractions and see how they are? I said, okay. So I got out of the bath and I went back to the toilet again, because that's just my second most comfortable place. She was trying to time the contractions, but I couldn't really communicate very well when they were starting because I was just so focused on being able to get through it. And my way of getting through it was just to be quiet and not say anything and know that it would be over in a minute or so. So I was trying my best to tell her as accurately when they were starting or not. And I could sense that she was like, oh, well, I don't really know if labour is even established because I, I could feel in myself that they had shortened. I could hear Chris walking around with his shoes on, which was annoying the bejesus out of me. I was like, take your shoes off. <laughs> and then I could kind of hear them quietly chatting 
but I couldn't really hear what they were saying. It was just like that background noise. I could sense that Selena was just outside the bathroom, like not really watching me, but just being present. And I was comfortable with that. She said, if you need to like wee or whatever, just do it. And I was like, okay. So I was like, I can't wee, I can't do anything. And I said, that pushing feeling is still there. And then I didn't even realize, but then afterwards she said, I only heard you once like really groan through a contraction. And that's when she knew that things were kind of too late. And then for some reason, I felt the need to put my hand between my legs. And that's when I said to her, I can feel my waters bulging. And I, in my head, I just thought my water's about to burst, like, and that this will be the next stage of labor. And then I pushed a little bit more firmly on that bulge and I could feel the baby's head right there. And I said to her, like I said, I can feel the waters. And then I was like, and I can feel his head. And she said, get off the toilet now. So, and she told Chris to go and get towels. So Chris went and got the towels and she said to Chris, like, put the towels under Vanessa And I was getting, I froze. I was like, I can't move. Like my legs don't work. And I was like, how do I get off the toilet now? (laughs) Anyway, somehow I did. And so his head, I guess, was already out. And then as I was getting myself off the toilet and lowering myself, like to be in that kneeling position, the rest of his body came out and the waters broke at that point in time as the rest of his body was birthed. And so Selena caught him. Thank God she was there. Like there was no time for Chris to be able to even get into that position to catch him. And yeah, and then she passed him straight up to me through my legs and and he was here. And I just couldn't believe that it all happened so quickly from like thinking that labor might not even be established to having him in my arms. And so I guess we were all kind of in shock in a good way. (laughs) And then I kind of just maneuvered myself to sit a little bit more comfortably with Nathaniel. And then within 10 minutes, my placenta came out itself. And yeah, and then we moved into the lounge room out of the bathroom so that I could lay a little bit more comfortably with Nathaniel and we had our skin to skin for as long as we wanted and then I could feel myself bleeding and I knew that it wasn't quite right so it had been about 45 minutes or so and Selena just said I think we should call the ambulance now and I was happy with that like I I knew straight away that I would be going to hospital like I didn't want to just stay at home I want I wanted to go to hospital I had planned a hospital birth So I wanted to go to hospital and be checked out. And so, yeah, we called the Ambos and and they came really quickly. Even now I know it's just standard for the critical care paramedic to come with them. And so I had three Ambos in my house and and they administered some Sintocin to try to control the bleeding, but it wasn't huge. It was just enough to be a little bit worried about. So we went to the hospital went straight into the birth suite and the midwives then took over and gave me a really intense fundal massage. And what had happened was because Nathaniel was born on call, 
the there were still some membranes inside that were causing the bleeding. So once they removed that, the bleeding really settled down. When you say he was born on call, did you say? Or in what's the pronunciation? Uh, I'm actually in call. What does it mean? It's E N space C A U L. Yeah, yeah, it's when your bag um, hasn't broken. Okay. The baby emerges in the bag. Yeah, it's supposed to supposedly really rare. Yeah. I, I guess it's gonna... quite peaceful for the baby That's because it, they're yeah. still in their natural, like in what they've known for all that time. And it's just so interesting how it's the complete opposite of what had happened. Yeah, exactly. You know, with Eleanor's birth where the waters had broken before your labour had really kicked off. Yeah, to that being the very last thing that happened. <laughs> <laughs> How did you feel? Like <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. Like I, I knew that um, I would achieve what I wanted to achieve, but I didn't know that I would be able to have such a hands-off birth, like without a single vaginal examination to check my progress or anything, um, and not a single CTG stuck to my belly not even a Doppler, like I was happy to have Doppler monitoring in in hospital. I guess that filled me with so much pride and confidence that my body could do exactly what it needed to do without anybody having to tell me to do anything. So, and that my body pushed my baby out without, when someone was telling me not to. So when it's ready to go, it will go. Yeah, it's really amazing. You really did listen to your body. Mm. Just tell you just, you know, you used your instincts, um, you know, you're on, you tried kneeling, that didn't work, and I've got to stand up again. Yeah. And the only place you could really, yeah, sit down was on the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> but it was probably probably quite lucky that your doula said, get off the toilet. When you <laughs> 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 Tell me, do you think in hindsight, when would have been the ideal time to go to hospital? In your I guess birth? when I called Selena, that's probably, I think that was when I was in transition and that's probably when I should have gone to the hospital because that would have gotten me to the hospital just in time to kind of push him out without anybody telling me what to do you or how to do it. feel as though you were holding yourself back from going to the hospital instinctively? You know, were there other reasons that you were holding yourself back from going to hospital, I suppose? I don't think so. I think... From what I have seen in the media or what has been told to me, I really thought that labour would have to be so much harder than my experience. Like, I don't want to say that everybody's experience, like, that people are dramatic or whatever, but my experience, I really thought that it would have to be so much harder, like, that it would have to be what I experienced in transition, that that would be the most part of labour. And if that had happened earlier then I, or for a longer period of time, then I would have gone to hospital at that point. And I guess because Selena had said we need, like, that you need to manage your pain as best as you can and not make the call too early, I had that in my head. So I really thought I have to be super strong and get through it before we make the call to go to hospital. And did you experience any tears? When you got to hospital, did they check you up? Yes, they said yes. There is a um, tear there. It was a second degree tear and they called an obstetrician and she came and stitched me up quite quickly. And the healing process from that, like within 24 hours, the swelling had gone down and I had no discomfort whatsoever. So it was a much, 
I would take that tear over the cesarean surgery any day of the week. Mm. Yeah, I, I feel the same way about, um, personally, about my tearing and my cesarean experience. And so with the bleed, was that classified? When you got to hospital, was it classed as a postpartum? Post, uh, post, what did the doctors say? They did class it as a postpartum hemorrhage. They estimated it to be about 900 mils of blood loss. So it was, I guess, on the higher end of normal. It wasn't an emergency or anything like that, but they did want to get it under control and it was under control quite quickly. So they estimated that based off the padding that the ambulance paramedics had used when they arrived and we took the towels with us so that they could see exactly how much blood loss there was. And how long did you stay in hospital for? Less than 24 hours. And we would have been out quicker, but they recommended to have an iron transfusion while I was there. At first I was told I would just need to take some iron tablets, which I was happy to do. And then at like three o'clock in the afternoon, a midwife came in and said, oh, I'm going to cannulate you for an iron transfusion. And I was like, excuse me? Like nobody had mentioned this throughout the day and then yeah and that was probably the most traumatic part because of the blood loss my veins had collapsed a bit and it it took the fourth person to be able to cannulate me which was really quite frustrating and disappointing after such a a nice birth experience oh actually I wanted to ask you how much did Nathaniel weigh he was 3.31 kilos okay I have a question for you now. It, having done that at home, having laboured at home and been through the experience at home, if you were to go back um, and choose between, obviously, a home birth or a hospital feedback, I suppose, uh, which would you choose and, and why? I would, if I were to have another baby, I would definitely choose some home birth midwives to have as my care providers, no doubt in my mind now, because even though I successfully had my VBAC, I think that the hospital system and our healthcare system is great for women who are high risk and everything like that. And if there was any indication in the pregnancy that I was high risk for anything, I would definitely go that route. But if it was a normal, healthy pregnancy, then I would have no doubt in my mind to have another home birth with midwives this time. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think your husband shares the same sentiment now that he's been through this experience as well with you? And and, he might never let me experience it again because he's pretty he's pretty done with two. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) fair enough. (laughs) Well, it's still early days. I mean, we're only. Three months in. (laughs) Hypothetically, hypothetically. (laughs) (laughs) He knows to trust my body as well. Like he, um, in the time, in the seven years that we have been together now, any time I've had like a little inkling of anything in my body, um, it's always been right. So he knows to trust my body and my instincts as well. And, And even with our daughter, like she is just getting over a urine infection and she went to the toilet one day and said that it hurt her and I looked at her and I just said she needs to go to the doctor like I don't know my mummy instinct just said even though there was no in- 
indication that she could have a urine infection, but she did. And I don't know, my mummy, it was a Sunday. And I said, we need to find a doctor that's open to, to have a look at her. So yeah, (laughs) often those instincts are right. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. What would be your advice, Vanessa, for other women out there? Uh, They might've had a similar first time a cesarean experience like you or they might be considering a home VBAC or even in a hospital VBAC what would be your advice to them on their journey? I think that any woman needs to kind of not discount anything so to make sure that you have an open mind in your early pregnancy and look into all care providers until you find something that resonates with you and what you want to achieve and there are plenty of women who want to have an elective cesarean and that's the right decision for them and then there are plenty of women who want to have a VBAC and I think it's just super important in your pregnancy to feel heard and feel that you're the one that's making the decisions because at the end of the day that's what empowers you to achieve the birth that will make you happy and give you all of those good love hormones to be able to connect with your baby as well. So it doesn't really matter what your birth is, as long as you have, you've been the one to make the decisions and felt empowered and supported to make those decisions. That's Mm. what was important to me through the process. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely some great advice. Well, thank you so much for sharing like the incredible story with us. And yeah. yeah, we're so happy that you've got a beautiful birth with yeah. Nathaniel um, after all you went through with, with Eleanor. Yeah, it's uh, con- beautiful. Congratulations, Vanessa. Thank it's you. really, really amazing. Such an amazing story. You should be yeah, really so- <laughs> proud, proud of yourself and your journey. Amazing. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening to this VBAC story. If you like the show, please subscribe and feel free to leave a review. If you would like to connect with us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for VBAC Birth Stories. If you have a question or you'd like to express interest in sharing your personal story, email us at vbacbirthstories at gmail.com. VBAC Birth Stories is a podcast where we share women's lived experiences. Please be advised that it's not intended to replace medical advice. If you have any concerns at all during your pregnancy, please always speak to your healthcare provider.